Welcome to the Pitching Command Show, brought to you by Command Tracker, the smart target that MLB and D1 teams rely upon to measure and train command. Many throw hard, but few command. Visit commandtracker.com. Joining today's podcast is my friend Peter Gammons, the legendary award-winning Hall of Fame sports writer, media personality, and musician. Welcome, Peter. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, you began your journalism career at Boston Globe when you covered the Red Sox for most of the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. you, you were also the lead baseball columnist in Sports Illustrated, as well as writing for a column in Sporting News. You then joined ESPN as a baseball analyst in 1988 and appeared regularly on Baseball Tonight and also made appearances on SportsCenter. And in 2009, you left ESPN and joined the MLB Network. You were voted the National Sports Writer of the Year three times by the National Sportscasters and Sports Writers Association. Wow, your career in baseball is amazing. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you. Was great that that uh, um, it's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it. Um, and most, I mean, baseball is clearly my first love. I loved covering uh, high school and college basketball when I started, um, and things like that. But uh, um, I uh, baseball was always the most fun, and I was lucky because I mean. That there weren't restrictions on the clubhouse where there are today, and and um, on the road, I would go out early, like at one o'clock in the afternoon, and I would uh, play pepper. Um, I would shag um, for the Red Sox hitters that wanted to hit early. Um, well, that's and, awesome. Uh, I learned. I, I learned a lot. I mean, I I think the main thing, uh, other than learning how players think. Um, and uh, it was just how difficult the game is to play. I mean, it looks so easy, but it's really difficult. And those guys, I mean, I, I once said to Jim Rice, you know, you didn't play any harder in high school than I did, but the talent level, he said, I said to him, you were a high school All-American football player in Anderson, South Carolina. You were a high school All-American baseball player, a number one draft choice. Um, finished runner-up for uh, uh, Rookie of the Year and MVP of Rookie Year. And um, well, I guarantee you, you didn't play any harder in high school than I did. I just sunk. And, uh, you know, it's, it is it's it is really tough, tough. It's very difficult. There's no such thing as a guy who plays in the big leagues who's a stiff or something. I'm sorry. I mean, oh, no, no. You get there, and it's, it, it's remarkable. And, you know, when guys – when guys can make it to make the way out of the Hall of Fame ballot, they get 10 years in the big leagues. That's an incredible accomplishment. I mean, yeah. my friend Steve Ciszek, I mean, he uh, he couldn't even make all Barnstable County on Cape Cod in high school, pitching for, for Falmouth High School. He um, played 13 years in the major leagues. Um, he... Uh, uh, had a 298 earned run average um, in those 13 years uh, as a relief pitcher. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a really tremendous career. And, uh, you know, Absolutely. when I was, when I was going into 
well, it was about a year ago, the year before you retired, I said, well, Steve, it, it, your career has been a tremendous, it's been a great career. And he didn't yeah. even realize it. Now, that's partly because he's such a modest person. But still, <laughs> I don't think enough is made of, well, there are two things that there isn't enough. There isn't enough made of posting, being in the lineup every day, being available, or more important, being available every day. And secondly, right. 10 years is a remarkable accomplishment. But going out there and being available to play every day is is really incredible. Yeah, Dan DeQuet was saying that the best ability is availability. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like the way I said that. I think also uh, I've noticed like uh, our, our mutual friend Emo, I was talking to him yesterday about this, and I said, you know, it's it's funny. Everyone that you introduced me to, I hit it off like I could just hang out and have a beer and talk baseball with. I said, why is that? It's because they're all down-to-earth baseball guys. So, like, I, there's a lot of guys like that in baseball who are just good guys that enjoy the game, you know? Oh, they don't absolutely. have they don't ego they don't have egos or anything. I think that the, the most important thing, and a good friend of mine with the Dodgers, who's one of the best scouts they have, says that on every scouting report, there should be a, at the beginning there should be a section that says how much does this person love to play, and yeah. it, it's really important. I mean, we see guys that get burned out a little bit, and you know they they. They go from 78 RPM to 33 RPM, or they just, um, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're, there are certain guys that like the money better than they like baseball. No, but I think the thing I'm talking about, it's like you and I are just talking like, you know, guys that are hang, hanging out. I, I was talking for the first time with Billy Wagner yesterday on the phone and just a nice, great guy. And, uh, here I'm thinking this is one of the best closers of all time talking to me. He knows nothing about me, like treating me like a regular person. And I thought that's a really great quality, you know? Well, Billy's, Billy's a remarkable guy. I'll never forget 1992 was the first time I ever saw him pitch. He was pitching for Brewster in the Cape Cod League. And um, that was uh, 30 years ago. He's still the best pitcher that I've ever seen pitch on the Cape. And it just, it was, I mean, he had such leg drive. He had uh, a great, a little bit of a funky delivery. He had the arm angle. I mean, he was only five foot nine. His arm angle was a little bit odd. Um, and actually, his right, his rising fastball was about yeah, way ahead of his time. Yeah, twenty years in front of his time. But he was truly great, and and he. Uh, he was inducted to the Cape League Hall of Fame last year, but he wasn't there. He had he was sick, so I had to play Billy Wagner in the uh, in, in the ceremony. But uh, proud yeah. to be. Yeah, he's awesome, and he broke his arm, and then learned how to throw left-handed, and became, oh, yeah. and then became a Hall of Fame caliber closer throwing with the wrong arm. That's amazing. Highest uh, strike for. Strikeouts per nine innings, many pitcher in history. Yeah. You know, a lot of shows, uh, people always talk about uh, high velocity. And on this show, we kind of try to talk it, but we think you need high velocity. But we try to talk about things that other things you need as a pitcher to succeed. 
like uh, control, command, sequencing, movement, changing speeds, mental training, and character. I wanted to know of those kind of things, how have you seen the emphasis on command change over the years? It seems that it's it's kind of gone to the wayside. I think it has because uh, velocity velocity sells. Velocity for about ten years, um, people judged uh, success by velocity, and it 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 just simply isn't so. It sometimes is very important. Ninety nine is ninety nine, but at the same time, um, yeah, guys have learned to hit velocity. But right. it, it's you know, if, it's still if it's two and zero, oh, I mean, it, it it's still not a it's still not great. You can throw a hundred, but you you might get hit, and it's um, now this is beyond um, how much damage has been done to so many people. Um, by trying to th throw, just they're trained to throw for velocity. I mean, there's a place where a lot of guys go to add velocity. And a friend of mine, another scout who was really good on pitching, he pitched 10 years in, in professional baseball, he said that they would be, they sound, um, they all cheer and sound a little siren if a guy hit 100. Didn't matter if it went like eight feet over the catcher's head. I mean, and that was his point. That that that's not pitching it. And you know, there's so much of the throwing with heavy balls, doing all that stuff, that you end up. It's 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 like guys are going out there doing lifting heavy weights, and, and that's not what what gets guys out. I mean. Well like like emo says what is your useful velocity meaning that it's good if you can throw hard uh it, it's a it's a goal you want to try to achieve but you have to have a level of, of at least control with movement you have to be able to at least change speeds uh i think too much emphasis is put on on only one thing like velocity and without working on changing speeds or getting movement uh and command all those things together uh you're not a pitcher like you said you know well there's so much that goes into pitching i mean I, yeah. I, I there's too much of the showcase stuff i mean oh well the best pitcher there was hit 103 30 times well that didn't have anything to do with pitching he had yeah. it had to do with throwing i mean as one yeah. pitching coach likes to say we've trained um an entire generation of pitchers with the essence of being they they're they're learning to pitch by deadlifting. And they wonder why they're all having Tommy John surgery at 23 years old. Mm -hmm. Did you see that uh 14 pitch plate appearance by Alex Thomas in game two with NLDS? The oh, Dodgers yeah. and Diamondbacks. Uh, that's the kind of point I'm getting at in the show is that without command without proper movement without sequencing changing speeds you could throw really hard but you can't put a guy away and and the job of a pitcher is to get outs without giving up runs you know oh absolutely i mean that's the thing um once he got command randy johnson didn't throw any harder 
1998, 9, 20, 21. But he had great command. It, 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 uh, he learned to pitch, and um, he would change speeds. He, he had the really good slider. Um, Nolan Ryan was like that really too, right? Good, he went from being a really good pitcher, which he became in 95 when he really pitched, was a key pitcher on the Mariners, and um, got them uh, got them helped get them past the uh, the Yankees, and they had that great series with uh, with um, Cleveland, and uh, you know it it was it there was just a lot that went into it, and you know Chris Sale, um, he changed dramatically. I still think if his shoulder holds up, he could be a very effective 180 in pitcher next year because he's now gotten the change up. So his changeup is so good. Um, and his command of his fastball is so good. It's just his armed shoulder didn't hold up this year. I don't know if it will, but with another winner to train and train properly, you never know. I think he could come back and he can win with the stuff he had. Uh, it's just, he, he couldn't always have it because it just, it, at this point, his career at 38, he gets, gets his shoulder gets tired. But another yeah. winter of training, he might, you know, will he be prime Randy Johnson? No, but he's such a competitor and he, he understands pitching so well, he could end up, again, for 180 innings and winning, you know, 16 games. Wow, that would be amazing. There was another one that I, I wanted to see what you thought about was uh, the ALDS Rangers Orioles game. You had Corey Seager uh, walk five times to set an NL, AL NL record for the most walks in a postseason game. And the Rangers had 11 walks that game to set an ALDS record. To me, that's, you know, that's pointed to a real lack of control or being afraid. You know, not throwing in the zone. What was your take on that? I I think it was. I thought the Orioles were very patient, um, and they did a good job. But I, I just, you know, you could the fastball. Kurt Schilling and his prime was one of the really great fastball pitchers. I mean, in '98 through 2001, uh, when the when the Mar when the uh, Diamondbacks finally won the World Series, I mean, ask ask Buck Showalter. He wouldn't throw anything with a fastball until the seventh inning. And but and I remember wow. talking to him about because he was telling me at, at some length when he was young he was a fanatic about throwing. And I think it was his grandparents' house. There was a fence there, and he would he would try to hit everything absolutely. But he had little. You know, he uh, took magic marker and chalk and marked it out on this wall, and he would he would throw the strikes to that. And by the time that all he ever did was throw fastball, pump fastball. But by the time when he really started to get his command in the late um, what about nineteen ninety? Well, he had it ninety three when. Remember, um, the uh, Phillies lost 15 to 14 in um, game 
five or four of the of the playoffs in Philadelphia. And um, the next night he went out and threw a three nothing shutout and got them back to the least they went back to Toronto. And there there there's where uh the, the home run beat them. But I mean Shirley had to come in, went and he was hurt a couple of years, but but those late, those four years through 2001 when they won the World Series, he was unbelievable. And it was very simple. Seventh inning, he'd start to throw a few sliders and some uh, some cutters and also uh, throw the split. And then he was unhittable. He could finish off the last three innings. He was so strong. His delivery was so good. And his command was so good. But he used to say to me, Peter, you once wrote this, and I picked it up, but you should remember this, that you always said that I had six different fastballs. I just could throw them all to six different spots, and it would be up and in, down and away, you know, and, and that's a big deal. Well, you you can take a fastball, and you could throw it. could be a sinker. It could be a runner. It could be a rise ball. It could be cutting. Oh, yeah. You know, so like Rivera. He would throw his cut fastball, but there would be some regular four seams in there too. And so the batters didn't know which way it's going, you know? Oh, yeah. And, and I mean, and showing when he went over to the Red Sox, the thing that was so great that made him so great in his career, and I thoroughly believe it belongs in the Hall of Fame, um, as does Randy Johnson. 2004, when he won at least one game in each series, each of the three series for the Red Sox. Mm -hmm. um, he was throwing, he wasn't throwing 98 anymore. He was probably throwing 95, 96 at times. But his command was so good that, I mean, he was always ahead in the count. And then, uh, and then 2007, it was actually comical because he had lost his velocity at that point with the Red Sox. He still went out and won a game in each one of the playoff series, and and um, which meant he did it three times in his career for Arizona and twice for Boston. But there were times when he was throwing 85 miles an hour, and Theo Epstein would the guys who the radar gun guys who would do who were Red Sox employees who sat down in like the fifth row. They were ordered at least once when he would be at 85 to 88. He would they would put up 92 miles an hour because Theo knew that that uh show you know, don't let him lose his confidence, let him let him be bold as can be. And surely mm -hmm. had the two things he had the great command, um, he could throw 88 to 90 miles an hour and still have perfect control, and also. He could do what very few pitchers are ever taught to do. They're, they're taught to, to pitch for the radar gun, but they're not taught to study hitters' swings. Rick Maddox yeah. knew. I mean, Maddox used to give the sign to Eddie Perez. I mean, he would, yeah. you know, he'd get, but I remember doing a thing for ESPN with the two of them about what they did together with the Braves. And Perez, I would just, I would sit in the middle, and he would give me the sign, and when when the, and also the, he had to have the ball back in two seconds because he wanted to control the tempo of yeah, the that's bat. Important. And um, it was really funny because um, Maddox admitted, well, you know, I had different ways, different ways to sign. I mean, 
for changeup, I used to like tend to pick my nose. Uh, he, he would sometimes tug at his cap. I mean, he would know what he was going to throw while the throw what the pitch he was going to throw by the throw that was coming back to the mound. And everybody kind of knew. I mean, Walt Weiss, whoever was the shortstop, would know. Oh, I, okay, this is what's coming. And it was, yeah. I mean, it was not Kurt Schilling, the Kurt Schilling that what that was the MVP of the 2001 World Series. It was the Kurt Schilling who just had the great desire to win for his team. And oh, well, that's you know, to go that's three times in six years and win. In the division series, the the uh, championship series and the World Series is incredible. Particularly two of those times, he was hurt, and but he could figure out how to get get through it. I mean, uh, once they stitched up his foot ankle in two thousand four, um, Jason Varitek knew exactly that he was going to win. And now, I mean, he and Varitek are perfect. Varitek was the master of being able to know what a, a, a take or a swing meant, what the hitter tried to do. Same thing, and they were on the same page all the time. And it was absolutely amazing. Uh, Brett Boone told me a great story. I was doing a uh, podcast with him last winter. And he said, that year that we won 116 games, pretty remarkable year most wins of any team ever in, in the regular season. He wow. said, we were completely psyched out by Jason Barrett. It wasn't about one of my, one of my framing statistics. They weren't about charting the game before the game was played. I mean, I'm sorry, but Barrios didn't have to come out of the game, but because of his pre pregame script on how he was, how many pitches he was going to throw. Some of the, Three times around the uh, around the order, but it doesn't apply to everybody. It applies to subject. Now, but Yankees, but in order in order for that to work, you have to have command. Because if you can read the batter, that's a great skill. It's critical, but the pitcher has to be able to have command to location that's required based upon what they saw. Right? Oh, absolutely. But uh, there's a, a good example. Mike King of the Yankees was an up-and-coming starting pitcher in the Yankee organization. His fastball had not – it was still like 88 to 90 as he was when he was in college. He, They trade him and um, the ghost of Miami, and they didn't think anything of him. Uh, he doesn't throw hard because they're, they were – after – um, after they, they switched general managers and uh, pro scouting director and made the trades and got them Alcantara, you know, from the, from the Diamondbacks and, and um, also uh, Lopez. They got those three guys in, in, in two deals that were widely criticized by the group that had been brought in from New York. Um, they were crazy on radar though. So they gave Mike Kate. Mike King, under some programs and, and working on a slider, got to be a dominant relief pitcher, but he was not comfortable warming up and, and, and getting up and down and up all that and just training for velocity. 
he went back to starting the second half of this year, was the Yankees' second best pitcher to the best pitcher in the league, uh, Garrett Cole. He went and back and started, I think it was about 10 games. Well, he, he maintained his velocity. But the funny thing is, like, a lot of people said, well, you know, he won't, he'll have to adhere to just going twice around the order. Well, hitters were six for eight, uh, no, um, one for 16 with, I think it was 12 strikeouts or two walks against his fastball after, from the third time around on. I mean, it just, it was just a matter of his learning his p- to pitch, sort of compensating it and wanting to throw hard, but not overdoing it as he was doing in the bullpen. Well, that's like you said, learning to pitch because it's a dance out there with the batter. You can't, you can, you can have a, a scout, advanced scouting report and tells you some good information, but there's no better advanced scouting report as watching the batter react to your pitch. Where he hit it, where he fouled it, what he took, what he didn't take. You know what I mean? Oh, All yeah. And also good. just understanding if you watch a guy's take or a check swing or whatever, you have an idea of where, where it's going. 1986. Tom Seaver was traded to the Red Sox in June. Um, And I've always said, Tom Seaver's on the Red Sox. And he's starting those two games, not Oil Camp Boy. The Red Sox would have won that World Series. He wasn't going to lose to Shea Stadium against the Mets to start with. But he got hurt with two weeks to go in the season, couldn't pitch again. But there was a time, once in a while, John McNamara, the manager, would allow, if it was the end of the road trip, he'd let Tom go home for a day or two to Connecticut. And it was only a three-hour drive to Fenway Park. So Roger pitched on a Sunday in Texas. And they had a left-handed hitting catcher. And when he came up against Clemens, uh, it was one nothing Red Sox. I think it was the fourth inning. And Rich Gedman, the catcher, explained to Roger he had no scouting report on Didn't know who he was. So Roger, um, so okay, I'll bury him inside with a fastball. Well, he bailed and wailed, just guessing that's what Roger would do. Hit a ball down the right field line, hit the foul pole. Rangers ended up winning the game 2-1. to one. And the Red Sox were, of course, in a pennant race. So the next day, I used to love to go down that corner of the clubhouse. There was Clemens, there was Bruce Hurst, there was Seaver. And in comes Seaver, goes up to Roger, what were you thinking? And that was really dumb. And Roger, you know, he idolized him. So, well, I, I just thought maybe I could throw a fastball and foul it off or swing and miss and, and uh so now you should throw a fast fastball up and away and just see what what he does, what his body language is, so you have an idea of that's what he's gonna do. And um so uh Roger never again threw a first pitch fastball inside in the rest of his career. <laughs> and that's three hundred and fifty-five points. So uh, wow. uh but um he uh I mean, he still talks about it to this day. And it was having that great veteran. I mean, my mind, one of the 
handful of greatest pitchers who ever lived. Telling him that, Roger really idolizing the great, great pitchers. And it was, that was pitching. That was knowing how to, okay, I need to find out what this guy's thinking. That was what he could do because the fast, both of their fastballs were so intimidating and so fa- and so hard. And it was just, you know, one of those things that. Well, that, that's a great example of uh, you can have a good fastball, but if you throw it in the wrong location, <laughs> you don't get a good result. So it goes to uh, command again, you know. Oh, absolutely. Least. He's still remembering it. <laughs> Uh, I, cool. I have a saying that I say that I stole from somebody. I don't know where it came from. <laughs> was that uh, home runs are mostly thrown, not hit. You know, I think that could be true. You know, I don't know where I heard it from. I didn't make it up, but uh, I, can't, I can't claim it. You know, <laughs> uh, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about something that I feel real strongly about. Uh, in 2019, I co-wrote an article uh, for Baseball Prospectus with uh, uh, Sean O'Rourke, uh, Jeff Long, and Harry Pavlidis, and it was called The RoboZone. It, it's not as simple as you think. And the reason I wanted to write that article was uh, I'm an engineer. I understand software, firmware, and the technology and the software behind all that. And I saw that a, a Pure RoboZone or ABS has too much room for finagling, meaning that you can write a backdoor to the software to make the strike zone smaller or wider during the game. You can do all sorts of things. So I figured let's write an article and talk about some things that could go wrong with that, uh, trying to head it off in the past so that maybe someone will read it and they'll implement some things to kind of make the game you know, fair, which is what we want. Uh, now, that won a Sabre Award in 2019. You know, the other thing, too, is when I talk about in the article was that uh, people would often complain about an umpire that the call was wrong, right? And I was saying that this just adds another layer because now you go from blaming the umpire to blaming the software. You'll say it was version 1.2 of the software that would have been a strike or not a strike, you know? And that the hardware and the software that determine the ABS are hidden from view from us, the public. So we can't really know whether it's being used fairly or not because it's buried in a machine. I've seen the ABS applied in AAA, and I like that the challenge system they have there. But when I was talking to the Yankees director of pitching, he was describing how they were fiddling around, raising and lowering the top of the zone in AAA this year. And that's the very thing that I was warning about in the article, is that we don't want to have people playing around with the zone. It should be defined so that everyone is playing on a fair playing field. And also that when they set the ABS for someone, the stringers are setting that. And it's like, well, who's checking the stringer that he picked the right zone for this guy? How have you found the RoboZone in AAA, and what do you think of that challenge system and kind of some of the things that I'm talking about being weary of? I like the challenge system a lot. I, I think I think it really works. I, I think one of the things that I heard the most in AAA was that the, that they couldn't get the, 
in the major leagues, the, the strike zones moved up so much. In the minor leagues, well, they're trying to teach their pitchers to throw the high fastballs and, and so forth. Yeah. But the the AAA, they couldn't get that high strike. And so some guys that had really performed double A and really grown put themselves in a position of maybe being another guy called up. They had more trouble because their fastballs were average fastballs, a little bit above average, but in the major leagues, they get whacked. And uh, um, it's they had trouble commanding it when they got to the big leagues because they had pitched for three months without being able to get that strike, so they had to bring the ball down. Yeah, see, uh, there was a follow-up article that I wrote in Baseball Prospectus. Uh, I call it the universal strike zone. And what I had done is I took Army data where they had studied the thousands of men, where the shoulders were, the nape of the knee, the you know hip, everything. And so I determined what was the uh, typical strike zone for a six-foot-two batter. And then I made that target. Remember I was telling you about the command tracker target? I made that target match that zone. And I was proposing in that article that there ought to be a universal zone so there's not all this playing around with the zone, where the height, width, everything else. What are your thoughts on something like that? Well, I think it has to be the same on every level. I mean, I think kids pitching in A ball or even in the, in the uh, complex leagues should have the strike zone. I mean, they should be they should pound it for the four years or five years they have before they get to the big leagues. Yeah. And uh, makes no sense to pitch one way in one league and so forth. I mean, I think they want to make things universal. I think you're going to see something this year, this next season, that they maybe they made some changes in the baseball. There have been a lot of complaints. I heard Dr. Meister from Dallas talking about how many guys that, that ended up straining their forearm because the ball's now there's nothing they can't hold. They have to really work hard to get a, a proper grip on the ball because they, they don't have the the uh, artificial grip that you have in the Japanese balls. But they're a different size than the American ball. So, I mean. Did, it, you, did you see that uh, chocolate powder that Dan Duquette was uh, promoting? No. It's a it's an inorganic kind of chocolate powder that makes them tacky and they've been testing it with um, MLB and and the idea was instead of using mud that comes from the what the Hudson River here that they would do a process that would be more uniform and consistent you know so when guys get a ball it's got a little tack to it and it's always the same uh, I'm a big believer that uh, everybody ought to have the same playing field like uh, for example when when my son comes off the mound in minor leagues, he's on TV watching him, and the umpires check his hands. And my wife gets so upset. How could they think he's cheating? I said, you don't understand. He will never cheat. But now it's making it a level playing field for everybody. So I like that, you know, because if you're going to compete, I want to compete fairly, you know. Oh, yeah. No, I, I think they really care about it. I know that. Um, people from uh, the medical profession are 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 ready to uh, they're they're going to join in and working on the balls and and uh, major MLB makes the baseballs. I mean they own the company, 
So, yeah. I mean, it's, I've, I've heard quite a few complaints. Scherzer's made quite a few. And certain guys don't have big enough hands. It's, it's very hard to stretch out enough to really grip the ball. And the other part of it, now that we're, again, having this deadlifted contest uh, to train pitchers, they're throwing so <laughs> hard, but they don't have command. The biggest yeah. concern in baseball is somebody's going to get killed. And when somebody is, if somebody gets killed, then all the people that have sort of fluffed off the whole notions of the grip of the baseball, um, training only for velocity, let's see them face this because it it, it isn't right. And yeah. there, are, there, there are companies that make a lot of money by training pitchers to throw harder and harder without command. And it's a very, very dangerous part of the sport and um well, well also what i'm finding is that those guys if they do get drafted uh a lot of my i have a lot of friends that are pitching coaches they'll say they've got guys throwing 98 get released all the time so they're selling things to these kids that okay all you gotta do is throw really hard and you'll get drafted well maybe you might but uh, as vimo says emo has a great saying for everything he says velocity will get you there but command will keep you there so that they have a short-lived career if all they do is focus on throwing harder. Uh, they'll find, I notice when guys get above double A, if you can't change speeds, if you can't some level of command, uh, that's kind of like the stopping point. I see a lot of guys get dropped off at that level. Have you seen that kind of thing? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, people say, well, this guy is, boy, you know, he had, five years as a top prospect and doesn't make it that's going to happen yeah um, i've and... also seen that uh as pitchers age the good ones the velocity drops like you were saying earlier but now they start developing better command better sequencing and better skills at reading batters and they go on to have they continue to have great careers in fact, it is on the second and third pitch. Um, the command, um, there's so much more to it than just saying, okay, I, I'm throwing 101 miles an hour. Now, I mean, if you're Duran in Minnesota, his ball moves so much, it's it's incredible. But they, to, to go further with the, they have to learn other things. And but they're not being taught to um, or encouraged to do it on their own, to, to do it without pitch counts, you know, build up and, 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 and pitch with, learn to pitch with control, learn to be able to put the ball the inside part of the player up, you know, or like Kurt Schilling, six different fastballs. I mean, that's, that, that's what will get guys out. And, uh, um, the pure power is, you know, I, I heard someone um, talking about, well, you know, Nola doesn't throw that. Nola has a great fastball. It's just not 102 miles an hour. Well, we saw the Phillies in the playoffs throw a guy that was throwing 92. It did, it did awesome. So we know it's not all about velo. We know it's about uh, movement, uh, command, uh, pitch selection, reading batters. You know, and on this show, that's kind of we're promoting when people watch it. It's like to have them realize that, well, you should amplify all of those things. 
you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, did you know uh, Tim Wake Wakefield? Yeah. How do you think he developed his average control for his knuckleball? That had to be some... Very good athlete to start with. Yeah. I mean, he, he came up as a first baseman, third baseman. Um, and he had great patience. You have to have great, tremendous patience. Because there are going to be nights when you're going to throw eight straight pitches that are great pitches where you thought they were going out of your hand, but they're balls. And you have you just have to be very patient about them. Guys are going to take a lot of pitches. It, it's it's a very, you know, Phil Nico used to say to me, very, very difficult thing to do, a very difficult thing to do, is to continually throw strikes and not change when you get behind the hitter or if the game is tied. Or, and you also have to worry a lot about um, not letting it have too much break when you have runners on sc in scoring position. And you don't want to have the ball. You don't want to get throw th four straight balls. You don't want to have balls bouncing in the dirt, getting by the catcher. So, um, yeah, I can't imagine having good control with a knuckleball. It's got to be incredibly difficult. Oh, I, I think it is. I mean, we've seen I mean, one of the most amazing innings ever, though, was an inning when Wakefield came in with the Red Sox losing whatever it was, 19 to 8 in game three of the uh, three of, uh, of the playoffs in 2004. They couldn't throw strikes and, and Veritek couldn't catch it. Balls kept getting away from him. And uh, he just had to go throw a lot of fastballs and curveballs and whatever else he threw that night. And he ends up getting out of the bases loaded, nobody out inning. And, um, they win that game uh, because he came, he came, uh, showed up in the dugout with cleats on, signifying he's ready to go in and pitch. And so they did, he, he pitched the time. Then the bullpen was rested. They won three straight with their bullpens. And uh, got to the World Series. I mean, it's uh, well. It, that's what you were saying about earlier. Is that you know the saying that is uh, winners find a way, competitors find a way to dig down and get it done. You know. Now, what do you think about like Pedro Martinez? He always had such a great stroke strikeout to walk ratio, but he led the league in the hit by hit batters. Now, what do you make of that? Um, sometimes his arm dropped. I mean, he, when and when he pitched inside, he couldn't always put it exactly where he wanted. But um, he was such a remarkable competitor and so great when when it was all on the line that, that he loved that that stage. Yeah, there there's a saying I use of his. I heard him say one time, uh, and we use it in the target. In in my target, we could define the areas you can hit to. But we also let you pick what we call the good miss areas. So if, you, if you're going to miss, you can miss over here. And his saying was that you execute your idea. So if you're going to go low and away, make sure you go really low and away, you know? Yeah, I, can, I, I, I understand that. But he was just a competitor. Yeah. He was a competitor. Plus, his, his, his changeup. I mean, you look. He had one. His one finger was so long, and you'd look at it, and the calluses on his finger would burn. I mean, there would be a little. There would be a little smoke coming up 
it would, there would be black spots on where the callus was. And he, wow. his arm was so quick. He threw, he, it was so quick and his finger was so long. The ball stayed on that finger and an extraordinarily long uh, period of time. And that would give him the movement it had. It was, it was incredible. Some nights when he was throwing really well, it was, it was just, and he also loved the moment. I mean, he was like, you know, I, I played uh, music uh, with Bernie Williams. And um, the night that we played with Buddy Guy in Chicago. So I was we going to in, ask you about that. Oh, that's, that was, <laughs> he walked, we finished our six songs. He's walking off the stage. We're finished out playing. And he walks across the stage, gives me a hug and says, you know what? That's the greatest thing I've ever done. Now, he's got, you know, four World Series rings, I believe. I've been playing guitar for 40 years, over 40 years. And it's just one of those joyous things where I don't have to think. I just play. I I get the feeling. It's a, uh, You know what I'm, I'm talking about, right? You don't, yeah. don't think about anything. You're just playing. It's just a nice feeling. But musicians, um, they live in the moment. They play in the moment. And Bernie, David Cohn told me, Bernie would go up, face Wakefield. Go in, he didn't like to hit from the left side. He hit right-handed against Wakefield, and he killed Wakefield. Uh, and it's baseball, a lot of times, it's playing in the moment. Pedro Martinez played in the moment like Little Richard or, you know, Stradivari. You know, it it's, didn't matter which what sort of music it was. He he absolutely loved it, and he, he lived for it, and the crowds lo lived for it. I mean, it's when he came to Boston, um, it was as if fans saw things they'd never seen before. The, that was a, the... His first year there was the first year of the uh, of uh, interleague play. So the Braves are coming back to Boston. They left after the 52 season. And here they are back. And um, I told Bobby Cox, just wait. When, when you see what happens between innings, when the when – the, when the Braves are hitting, the noise level is much happier, uh, higher than when the Red Sox are hitting. And he said, well, that's not the home park like Fenway. I said, oh, yeah. After the game, he said, you're dead right. It was all because it was all about Pedro. I mean, the Red Sox had a good hitting team and everything, blah, blah. But it was about people wanted to see Pedro pitch. And the, the crowds were incredible when he when he went out there. And uh, and guys get pump, pumped up like that. Like my son, when he was playing, uh, it was some level in Pulaski. And there's nobody in Pulaski, you know, nice stadium. And they're playing, I think it was low A. And he said, it's, it's hard to get amped up because, you know, you don't feel anything's on the line. But then when you play in like, let's say you play for the, uh, against the Mets in Staten Island. I mean, in uh, Coney Island. 
Yeah. Well, those bands, it's it's loud. I've seen my son pitch there, and it's loud. But that pumps him up. It's like that kind of uh, atmosphere gets you pumped up. You know, and maybe Pedro fed off that. You know. Oh, I think I think pitchers do. I mean, they they get the feeling, and they're riding a wave in some ways, and uh, it's just really fun. Yeah. What would you say is the best piece of baseball pitching advice that you ever heard? I know it's a tough question because you've probably heard a I lot. I think if you're a youngster, it's it's all about just throwing strikes all the time and ha- having that that target up on a wall. I you know I had it. I never threw hard enough to make any difference, but I had chalk on a brick wall that I used, and and also a church wall I threw threw against all the time as a kid, um, and uh, it's just it, it's about that. That's what you want to do. Have places marked on a wall where you want to hit them and then hit them. I mean, and, and it might take two years, but if you can hit those spots, you, you can uh, you can do it. I, I think it's very important, too, to have catchers that um, give you, present you a very good target. When Johnny Bench once was demonstrating for me, um, there were we were talking about pitcher catcher relationships, um, and I told him what Brad Ausmus, who caught the seventh most games in baseball history, um, always said, which is the job of a catcher is to create to create conviction in the pitcher. And yeah, Brad, so he, Brad was Brad was on the show a couple of shows ago. We were talking something. Oh, uh, he, he's phenomenal. Yeah, but he. Um, what happened was that that Seaver and Bench created a scene for that in the lobby of the Otisaga Hotel in Cooperstown the day before the the uh, induction ceremony. And Bench got down, and he, I mean, he had such huge hands, but it was all about the, the, presenting the target, and and, and uh, it wasn't about framing or anything like that. But they used a, a, a uh, they demonstrated something. That was Seaver's first start uh, in June of 1977, after the Mets traded him to uh, to Cincinnati. And Seaver said he was a wreck because he was really afraid. He's coming over to a team that just won the World Series the last two years. He was really, am I going to screw it up? Or what? What's going to happen? So. Um, he gets the first guy out three, three or four pitches. But Tom said, I wasn't throwing very well. I mean, it was, it wasn't anything that was going to last for six innings or something. So, um, he gets ready to face the second batter. And, um, uh, Bench gets up from his haunches, walks up, walks across the room in this case, or out to the mound, gets right in Seaver's face and says, are you trying? And, of course, <laughs> Seaver cracks up laughing because he knew, I mean, Bench knew Seaver's a very funny person. Bench is hysterical and very clever. And um, <laughs> I believe I believe in the end he had a, either a one or two hitter when the game was over. And 
it was just he was returning Seaver to his natural pitching state, but he was also emphasizing that have fun and 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 throw strikes with your best stuff. And it was just no, just he knew, even though he didn't, hadn't played with him, he knew Seaver enough to know that was the way to approach it. Relax him. Could tell well, he was tense. And and I mean, like that's like the funniest thing probably that was ever said to Tom Seaver during a baseball game. Yeah. Well, old tense muscles are slow. You got to loosen up, you know. And you know, I think it was. Uh, Gil Patterson was telling me a story on this show about uh, he was with, I think, the Expos when Halliday had the highest ERA of any starter over 100 innings, and he got sent down. And then he said they changed his arm slot from a hot overhead to uh, a three-quarter. He mm -hmm. said it went from 98 to 95. And he said then he worked with uh, a Dorfman and just worked on his mental skills, having focus conviction, you know, all the things that you have going on in your head when you're pitching. And then when he came back, you know, he became the Hall of Fame pitcher. We all know. What do you remember about that uh, scenario with Halliday? Well, well again, it's, it's conviction. I mean, a pitcher has to be convicted of what he's throwing. And yeah. he he got it. And uh, um, there are so many pitchers that went to 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 um to get that mental help from Harvey, who was a genius. I mean, just look at Al Leiter. I mean, you know, I, I worked with Al. He's he can be nervous, but he's a really good pitcher. And you know, I mean, there were other guys. Kevin Brown, believe it or not, people think, oh, he was just you know tough macho. I mean, he needed Harvey Dorfman before he walked out the pitch every time. Kevin Brown, very close to being a Hall of Famer. He was a great pitcher, and it was really tough. But it, it's it's that conviction that you have to get, and um, it's some people just it's it, it getting there. And the catcher is an important part. I mean, I'm sure we can we can come up with several people who had Harvey Dorfman and Brad Oswitz. And the result was really good pitcher who got, uh, after his 10th yeah. year in the big leagues, got a few uh, got a few votes. Yeah, because I even heard the story about Maddox had the same kind of thing when he sent down and had to work through some things and came back with a different mental attitude and changed his whole game too. Oh, yeah. You know, I found with uh, command, uh, that mental focus and intent uh, is critical for command. So it's kind of like a dual purpose thing to work on your mental skills for command as well as for other parts of your game pitching, you know? Well, um, part of it um, for certain pitchers is everything is emphasized as to what the hitter can do. So you're supposed to try to miss bats. And um, people are so focused on um, the necessity of velocity to get outs easily. 
And, you know, just, just watch George Kirby. Yeah. Sixth, he is sixth since the, the dead ball era in strikeout walk ratio. And, oh, he only throws 93 to 95. Well, you know, it's one of the I best pitching coaches in the game said to me, he has one of the he has one of the five best fastballs in the game. It's just not about velocity. It's about command, movement, and um, right. I've had other pitching coaches say to me, you know, that I had his pitching coach. I had his pitching coach on here yesterday. Uh, Sean McGrath had him when he was in the Mariners three years, mm-hmm. and we were talking about him, and I, and he was saying that uh, good pitchers make uh, pitching coaches look good. I said, well, yeah, but. I said, you had the foresight to train him in command when others might have just trained him to throw harder. Well, he was also lucky to go to Seattle, fortunately. They got a great system. Yeah. And Jerry DePoto really believes in the command part of it. And I, I remember seeing a game, I was watching a game that George pitched on Cape Codley. And Scout said to me, um, he's interesting, but Boy, he, he doesn't throw hard enough. And he was um, 90 to 92, Kirby was. We're in the sixth inning, and it wasn't even an hour yet. He had one hitter, and that mm-hmm. was a bad hop. And I just, well, wait a minute. If they don't hit him, you know, it's, what does this mean? I mean, he's got... He's got a fastball. He moves all over the place. It moves like crazy. And commands it. It's guys swing, swing it. I mean, I, I'm this one of very smart pitcher coaches I know who has a staff of a lot of strikeout pitchers. Says he wishes that a lot of the, the hitters would make soft contact on um, 2 0 pitches rather than just swing and miss. Because he got you stay in the game. I mean, it's not about velocity. It's not about strikeouts. It's about how many innings are you throwing as a starting pitcher. How many yeah. times? And Rick Porcello, the year that he won the the signing award, Rick was never. I mean, he was a good, very good pitcher, but um, his his credo was: if I'm not pitching in the seventh inning. I'm letting a lot of guys in the bullpen down and possibly jeopardizing their arms and their careers. Right. Now, Rick Purcell was one of the best teammates you could ever have. But at the same time, I always really impressed me. And, and uh, um, I remember when um, it, a teammate would pitch a great game. He would just be, you know, oh, well, it's uh, Ivaldi comes in out of the bullpen in game three of the World Series in 2018 and goes, whatever it was, eight innings out of the bullpen. Finally gave up a home run. They didn't win. But the Red Sox won out of the bullpen. The next three games of the World Series was over in five. And it was it was a historic performance in terms of what it meant for the Boston Red Sox and their history and beating the Dodgers in five games. In the World mm-hmm. Series, and um, it was also historic in that it made Evaldi a, a folk hero forever in Boston until they let him go to Texas. And then um, 
It also had left Porcello to, while talking about his teammate, to have tears in his eyes when he was talking about because it was such a gutsy performance. And yeah. it it he was throwing strikes. He's that's a, he's a. I, I gotta a, ask you. I gotta ask you something. How on earth do you remember all of those details? <laughs> you have some memory. Well, there are things you want to remember. Things you just don't forget. I no, mean, but I, you're, I, recall, I, you're recalling details about games from so far back. It's like, how is he doing that? <laughs> well, I, I did uh, in 2017. Uh, MLB Network wanted to do a special on the on the '67 Red Sox and the, the the impossible dream. You can't do that without Yaz. Yaz had had been in Fort Myers working with young players, and if he did one of those interviews, he was going to have to do about ten of them. So he just didn't do any. And I I didn't realize this. I called um, Pam Ken and asked her. Um, you know, I, I really want to set up, see if I can get Yaz to talk about 67. She said, he knows you very well. I'll give you his number and tell him that. You call him. If I call him for you, he won't do it. Um, so I called him. He called back in like 20 minutes. In the interview, he said it was going to be 25 minutes. We did it. He wanted to do it after the season started. So we did it in one of the uh, the places at Fenway. And um, he did it for an hour and a half. We went over other things in his career other than just that. Now, right. those last few years of his career, I was covering them. Um, there were the last five years of his career, I was his designated shag. So if he wanted to go out early and hit, his good luck, I would be the shag. And, That's pretty cool to be able to do that, though. Well, it was incredibly cool. But he would come in and say, okay, this pitcher's going to do this, this, this. It's a little slot baller. He's going to try to hit, throw breaking balls, hit me off the back foot. So I'm so play around towards the right field corner because I'll be pulling the balls when I'm out hitting. And he explained to me everything that was going to happen in the game. And a couple of years ago, he asked me, you know, you never wrote about that. Um, and I said, well, I'm, first of all, I'm not done writing yet, um, but uh, you aren't playing. So I said, you you, you would not have liked my talking about shagging for you. It, it just, you, 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 you would have been polite, but you would, wouldn't have liked it. Probably would never have done it again. And, um, you know, I, I understood yes. I have great admiration for him. But it was... It was amazing how he would. So he didn't watch video. He, 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 he knew it all by memory. He remembered things like, in '67, in early September, they were playing in Yankee Stadium. They were in the tenth or eleventh inning. Al Downing had come in relief, and Carl said he always wanted to get me out with a fastball right about here. So we went back and forth through breaking balls. He was waiting for that moment. So I was basically hitting defensively. But then, you know, we're at three and two in the 10th inning. And 
I'm saying, I'm looking for that fastball up there. I could I could react and foul off most other pitches, and uh, throw my high fastball. And we hit it in the third deck. Red Sox win, went into first place, and uh, he knew that. We had another one, a thing in Toronto where uh, a young pitcher named Baylor Moore threw, got him 0-2 with two good sliders. He's a left-handed. And then he threw two fastballs right behind his head. And um, next pitch was a nasty slider down the way. He has it off the top of the center field fence, tied the game to send it into extra innings because there were two men on. And uh, so I uh, I kind of smiled while I was doing this interview. And he said, well, I mean, you like my answer. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you asked me. And I said, I thought it was the closest I ever came to death. And it was in the second paragraph of your story the next morning. So you must have liked the quote. And I just thought, this is unbelievable, his recall. This is, it happened in 1978 when the Red Sox had blown the lead and now we're trying to come back. Um, and the interview we were doing is in 2017. All those years in between, not only does remember exactly what happened on every pitch in that we remember what I wrote the second paragraph of my story the next day. Now that's a baseball player. <laughs> yeah. But I noticed a lot of pitchers too. After you can go back and you say, well, in that second game, when you, the second pitch you threw to that third batter, uh, what were you trying to do there? And they'll, they'll recall exactly what they threw and where and why and what happened. Uh, so I find a lot of pitchers have that good memory about what pitches they threw, you know? Oh Yeah. You know, Bill Lee um, was at Fenway Park in September. Dusty Baker was there, and Bill wanted to talk to him about because the last home run hit off Bill Lee was by Dusty Baker. So he, wow. But then I said, "Does it ever drive you crazy?" He threw back the you got the lead in game six. I mean, game seven, and you threw back to back changeups to Tony Perez, and he hits a three-run homer, a two-run homer to, to make it 6-5. That was the biggest hit in the game. Anyway, well, I'm still ticked off about that. And I said, why? He said, I told Daryl Johnson that I was out of gas after the eighth inning. And I just... Uh, I mean, after the fifth inning, and, um, you know, I mean, I had to throw changeups to try to keep going, and I threw it to the wrong guy. <laughs> well, also, in the minor leagues in college, uh, I always think that those kind of mistakes are important because you learn from them, so that if you're developing pitcher, you need to have those mistakes happen in games where you now, as you go up in the ranks, you can now become a better pitcher, you know? Yep. So now I'm going to bring up a list of nine things 
that I think are important for a pitcher. And if you would please pick your top four, and I'm going to read them off real quick. Uh, the top nine qualities I think are character, command, changing speeds, movement, max velocity, sequencing, reading batters, mental toughness, and know who you are. Um, well, I think character and mental toughness kind of go together. So I'll make that, that will, that will be one by itself. All right. Um, I think, um, changing speeds is extremely important. Um, I think, um, movement is, you've got, well, I'll go to the end there. You have to know who you are. I mean, you can't be you can't be pitching like, geez, I want to pitch like Greg Mack. If you're not Greg Max, if you're George Kirby, you don't pitch like Greg Max. Right, that's a big one. Although I will say this: in the last start of the year, the day after Tim Wakefield died, he started out a very important game by throwing a knuckleball <laughs> in 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 in. Uh, um, and I think reading batters is terribly important. We talked about that, but I, I really, I'm a great believer in that. So what think, would it be? It would be a character, changing speeds, know who you are, and reading batters? Yes. And so what I'm going to do is post these later, because uh, now we're at, I think, 20 shows. And so I've been keeping track of uh, what everyone answers. And then I'll kind of post, you know, so everyone sees what other people, well, you know, what people thought were important. Uh, it's okay. funny, though. Uh, max velocity has really come up in the top four. It depends on someone's max velocity. Some somebody's right. max velocity might be 93, but it has great movement or is very tough to pick up because, you you know, and, and the, the arm slot is so important. I mean, that's a part of knowing who you are. You, you're not an over-the-top pitcher. You're you're a low three quarter, and you get great movement with that. And you can, um, you know, you, you, your fastball is um, it's the equivalent of a ninety six, but it happens to be ninety two, ninety three. Yeah, yeah, we've heard that a lot. Yeah, uh, Peter, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's this great been a fun. great discussion. It's and, great uh, fun. Yeah. Uh, anyone who is a friend of Emo is a friend of mine. and uh, He's uh, tremendous. He's awesome, isn't he? All right. So uh, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Great. Thank you very much. All right. Bye. Okay. Don't forget to hit subscribe to get notified when new episodes are released. Pitching Command Show, brought to you by Command Track, the smart target that MLB and D1 teams rely upon to measure and train command. Many throw hard, but few command. Visit commandtracker.com.